Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. One important announcement, far more important than what I just said here, is starting next week in the first service, we are going to continue or begin, rather, I should say, uh, restart children's ministry. We've had it in the second. Now we're going to be having that in the first service. It's not going to involve infants, but it is going to be provided for ages one through grade six. I kind of messed that up before when I said it. So it's age one up through grade six, no infant, for first service. We're starting to max out, as some of you have noticed here in the second service here a bit. So for those of you that are online that want to join in, uh, first service is a great option for you. There's still a little bit of space there, and we're going to continue to grapple with the circumstances that we have. Today we're going to begin a new series entitled Deep Calling. Now, we just concluded a series entitled No Other. I feel that that series was of pivotal importance to us as a church. Um, I think it's important in stating um, where our identity, where our allegiance uh, lies. Um, If you missed that, a little bit of an almost type of summation uh, someone showed me recently is a short video clip um, from a pastor named Tony Evans in Texas. And uh, I just think it captures a few things. So before we go any further, uh, take a look at this before we continue on. There's a famous nursery rhyme that simply goes, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Mr. Dumpty's world had become shattered, and he needed it fixed. But he didn't go to his friends or his family or even his church. He went to the White House. Now, we know he went to the White House because the king got involved. The king was sympathetic to Mr. Dumpty's dilemma, so he called a meeting of Congress. We know Congress got involved because all the king's men got involved. The tragedy of the nursery rhyme is when it was all said and done, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It is unfortunate today that far too many believers are expecting the solutions to our problems to land on Air Force One. I'm taken to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is doing reconnaissance around the walls of Jericho. He looks over and he sees the captain of another large army dressed in battle array. Now Joshua's mama didn't raise a dummy. He wanted to know whose side are you on? Because if you're on our side, then we got help against Jericho. But if you're on their side, we've got double trouble. So before I go out here and make a fool of myself, whose side are you on? That's when the captain says to him, I think you are confused. 
I'm neither on your side nor am I on their side. I'm captain of the Lord's army. I did not come to take sides. I come to take over. You and I have to understand is God does not ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. That if you're a Democrat, the best you can do is vote Democrat light, L-I-T-E. Or Republican light, L-I-T-E, because your job is to bring the either one, the L-I-G-H-T. Your job is to represent another king in another kingdom. You and I belong to another kingdom. Let's represent the king. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. But seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be given to you as well. Father, this morning we come before you and as we lay tithes and offerings at your feet, whether it's online or in this gathering here today, we give generously because you have given generously to us. We give without uh, compulsion or manipulation, but just out of gratitude and a recognition of your sovereignty, your rulership, your lordship in our life. Lord, we pray that this morning as we examine your word, that you'd make it real to us, that we'd walk away with some different understanding than when we walked in, and that there'd be something changed within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We examined over the last several weeks, cross, God's name, where our allegiances lie. This passage in Matthew, and what was referenced briefly here before, and really was the summation of the last three weeks, is something called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, he is referencing what the kingdom is. The kingdom was the summation of his intentions for us, of his rulership, of his ways. It was to consume all our identity, all our allegiance, all our citizenship. There are two very major places in the scripture where he expounds upon this. One is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. There's another one that we're going to be taking apart over the next uh, eight weeks. Believe it or not, Easter is eight weeks away. Uh, it's coming early this year. I don't understand what the time zones are even happening anymore. I, I guess there's something, some silly little football game going on today. I've lost track entirely. The second point he references is in Luke chapter 6, referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. There are those who think this is the same message. There are others that think that it's two different things. Either way, he would have constantly and was constantly referencing this kingdom of God theme. One of the things that's intriguing to me about this passage in Matthew as well as the passage in Luke is that they both end the same way. They both conclude with a parable. Not just one of my favorite parables, but one that we used to establish the name of this church when we renamed it and relaunched back in 1995. Luke chapter 6, he concludes both of these messages on the kingdom of God by challenging the people listening and saying, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? 
I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep, and that phrase, digs deep, has really resonated with me lately. We have such a shallowness in our society today. We are constantly skimming and flying through one uh, screen after the next. But here Jesus is calling us to dig deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. And when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. And when the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse in a heap of ruins. Jesus ends both of his messages that are fully about the kingdom with this parable. When we named this church, one of the pastors, there was another one, but one of the ones we tapped into was this saying that, that when you clear away all the dirt, when the Holy Spirit works upon you and we dig down deep and we clear all the dirt and the, the, the junk in our lives and let the Holy Spirit sweep all those things down and we get down to contact with Christ, when we hit that point, that rock, and we establish our life like that, that we've hit rock point, that we've hit a point of contact with Christ, a foundation upon which to build our lives. And it's not just the matter of a Holy Spirit moment where we are transformed and come to relationship with Christ, but it's an ongoing process of discipleship and construction as we submit ourselves to God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was supposed to break through all other identities, ethnicities, nationalities, ideologies, all sorts of perspectives. The kingdom was an identity, an allegiance, a way of life. To have a kingdom worldview was to be able to view things through a lens and bring understanding to what surrounds us. Everyone has a worldview. If you are an atheist or a secularist, you still have a worldview, a, a way to which you, which you view life and understand it. For the Christian, it is to be the kingdom of God. And it's through that worldview that we understand life and humanity ourselves. We have a very confused society today. And the reason why is because we have as a nation unmoored ourselves from the foundation that is the scripture. We are biblically ignorant today. And I'm talking about Christians. That we no longer understand or seek out the deep things of God. And in this confused society, Everything is up for grabs. So it's in the context of this that Jesus comes and begins to speak of his mission, his purpose to establish this kingdom of God, this transformative way of life and thinking and processing and how to view and understand success and failure. He begins both of these, whether it was in Matthew or in Luke, with this bizarre and disturbing phrase. Luke chapter 6, verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that are poor, for you're going to receive the kingdom of God. 
I'm not going to ask today how many of you uh, either grew up poor or currently are poor or are working hard towards becoming poor in the current environment. But I will be confessing to you today, I grew up poor. I did not realize it. I knew little moments of time, like actually in one of our wealthier times when we would go out to lunch at a cafeteria after service and on a Sunday and, and I'd get my tray and then I reached up for a, a, a thing of sour cream to go with my baked potato and I'd get the look of death from my father because it was 15 cents to get that thing of sour cream. I now buy whole tubs and I just smear it all over my potatoes whenever I want to. Sometimes at home when I'm alone. We all deal differently. There was a point in time in our life when um, we were living in uh, a 17-foot travel trailer that was designed for the summer, not the winter. Uh, when all the beds were down, all the couches were laid out, it slept the five of us all cramped together. And in the winter, we had a kerosene heater in there that my mom said later, it's surprising we didn't all die of carbon monoxide. I recall in that time period a little slice of our life when a person pulled up, and I still recall them coming out of the car and opening up the trunk of their car and pulling out several bags of groceries for my family and I. I was poor, but not conscious of it. Jesus here is talking about poorness of a different type. He's talking about a poorness in spirit. He's talking about an awareness in our heart and our mind that we have nothing to bring to the table. When we are wealthy, we have no dependence upon other people. We can insulate ourselves from the problems and issues of life, and, and, and we get by, we provide anything we need, we're proud of that, and we're self-capable and all that's with it. But when you are poor, you're dependent upon, as one actress put it, the kindness of strangers. You realize the weakness and the circumstances that you are in. You realize that you have nothing to bring to the table. It is not, as some would like to say, self-hatred. It is not, as some would want to say, a sense of insignificance, neither of which are true. We should not hate ourselves, and you are all, all of us are significant in God's eyes. But what he's talking about here is a poorness of spirit in the sense of an awareness of our sinfulness, of an awareness of our rebelliousness, of an awareness of how we have nothing to which to offer a righteous and holy God. And in that moment of vulnerability and total awareness of dependency, upon this confession of sinfulness, then God's grace is made real to us. For we have not insulated ourselves in any way we're broken and in need of grace and someone to love us and draw us forward. And this is why Christ began his most significant message ever with the word, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. James chapter 4, verse 6 said he gives us more grace and that's why the Christ, uh, scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
If you were to ask at one time, as someone once did to Billy Graham, to say, uh, what does this being poor in spirit mean? He said, if you replace the word poor for the word humble, then you get a grasp of what it means. And so in our humility, in our simplicity, Christ can then approach us and we are conscious and aware of our need and in the right position to receive it. This is why Jesus begins this as the first in a several rungs on a ladder as he's walking through this kingdom of God thing. He begins this with the very first. It's the very first step and it's one that anybody can take a step to. Doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter your wealth. All these things are simple when we just come down to the idea of saying, I'll take that first step and put my foot upon that rung and accept that I am poor in spirit and completely and utterly needful. Now, because of my family's social status, I was never conscious of being poor growing up. I thought everyone lived the way that we did bit by bit, watching every penny, watching every moment. It was only later from another perspective as I would look back and realize the poorness of where I'm at. And that's where a lot of us are here today at. You're poor in spirit, but you don't even realize it because you're jamming so many other things in your life. And because of certain status that you have or positioning in our minds that we take, that even though we're truly poor and bereft of anything, we imagine ourselves to be otherwise until we come to the full understanding of the poorness of our condition. We can't really enter into a relationship with God. And this is why Jesus begins with that statement. He tells us that in the midst of this, that there'll be grace that is extended to us. That, that greater love hath no man that he would not, that, that, but that he would die for his friend. He talks about a seed that unless it's planted in the ground and dies, it doesn't give fruit. And so he's going to be this seed that falls to the ground. He's going to be the one that dies out of his grace and out of his love for the poorness of our condition to intercede for us and extend this grace to us and this love to us. We don't understand this love. We don't understand anything about love today in our society. We are so profoundly deeply confused. The Greeks had four different words for love. They broke it down. They understood the differences that could be engaged. One was storge. It's this kind of empathy bond. It's this family members for your, your, your own immediate family that, that you relate to one another. That's a type of love that's unique to the family structure. The other type of love was philia. It was the love between friends. This, this history that you could have over years of time. I've got several friends in my life that I may not see for years at a time, but when we're back together again, it's like nothing has changed. There's a depth of, of filio love that exists in friendship. The third one is the one, though, that most dominates our society today. It's the eros, the romantic love, this idea of being in love. Loving someone. It can be erotic and often is in nature. And this has permeated our society to the degree that to us everything is kind of wrapped around this and moved with this and we don't understand the more subtleties of love. We get it confused in how we put boundaries or dictate what's taking place around us and so we 
bend and warp and twist so much of that. Love wins. Love is everything. Love is this. And there seems to be so many things of what it wraps into. One theologian said that the reality is according to at least God's word, you can love whoever you want to. There are no restrictions. You can love whoever you want to. You just don't necessarily have sex with whoever you want to. There are restrictions upon that. But in our words, we tie those things so tightly together that we forget the fact that there's in fact two other types of love. And in fact, even a third beyond that. And this fourth love beyond storge, beyond philia, beyond eros, is agape, this unconditional love that we find in God. It's the love that exists regardless of changing circumstances. It is the thing that, that takes the poorness of our condition and despite the fact that we have absolutely nothing to offer, there's no transaction whatsoever, embraces us, dies for us, restores and heals us. We don't understand this in our culture today. The ancient Greeks told us to be not moderate by knowing our inclinations towards immoderation. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering and structuring our lives and getting discipline in them. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls with the oneness of the universe. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. It is only the gospel, only the good news of Jesus Christ that tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity has been referred to in some sections as the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing not our wealth, not our gifts and our abilities, but our need, our poorness, our emptiness. Many of us in this gathering today and even connected by live stream understand what I'm talking about. And at some point in your past, you received that love. Now, there are others of us in this room and through the stream that have never made that commitment. You have not made that allegiance statement. I'll come back to you in a moment. But for those of us who did, who made that commitment long ago, we recognized our poorness of spirit. We came to a new awareness by God's Holy Spirit. We embraced the kingdom of God a new life, a new beginning, a new birth, and we pursued those things. We dug deep into the things of God. But for a number of us over time and over years, those things faded. And what once was an all-consuming passion for us became relegated to a distant part of our mind and heart. In Revelations, God is speaking to seven churches. One of them is this church that has um, stood for God in really tough times. 
it was a, a place where there was a lot of wrong doctrine and, 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 and idol worship, and they had taken good stands. And as God tested them, he's found them to be solid. And, and I think there's a time of testing that's ha- happening for the church right now through this whole last year, and I think it's going to continue on to this next year. And it's a testing of who we are and where we stand. And he says this to this church in Revelations chapter 2. He says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they're not. You've discovered they're liars. And you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Wow. It'd be great if you stopped there. But he doesn't, he goes on and says, but I have this, this complaint, I have this one thing against you, it's huge. Because despite all your obedience, despite all your allegiances, despite everything in place, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. One of the other translations in the King James says, but you have left your first love. That there's something about your passion that has grown cold. Have we, those of us who've been followers of Christ, who made that commitment however long ago, has it receded to the background? Have we lost that first love, that passion? Do we need to be reminded of of Jeremiah chapter 2 where the prophet says, this is what the Lord says, I'm calling you, I, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and you followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. In other words, a place where there was just nothing. But you followed me because you were in love with me. And there was a passion and you followed. Years back, someone I've been in a relationship for years who's spoken here before, Steve Fry a pastor, an author, and a writer of songs, wrote a song that gripped my heart what would have been decades ago, and I've never forgotten it. It's entitled just simply First Love. And I can draw it off of my memory. I still remember 30 years later, the words, they were, take me back to first love, to the place where I once was, where my passion was just obeying. And prayer was sweet. The sweetest thing I know. Everything was possible with you. Take me back to the place of my first love with you. So recently, just to make sure my memory was up to speed, I went to one of my advisors, Google. <laughs> and I tapped in first love to see if I could just try. I just want to make sure that I was correct in my mind. I, I, I thought maybe I had one word wrong or not. But what popped up wasn't uh, Steve Fry's song. What popped up was a song entitled First Love by Adele. And these are the words of that song. Forgive me, first love, but I'm tired. I need to get away to feel again. Try to understand why. Don't get so close to change my mind. Please wipe that look out of your eyes. It's bribing me to doubt myself. Simply, it's it's tiring. This love has dried up and stayed behind. 
And if I stay, I'll, I'll be a lie. And then choke on words I'll, I'd always hide. Excuse me, first love, but we're through. I need to taste a kiss from someone new. Forgive me, first love, but I'm too tired. I'm bored, to say the least, and I lack desire. Is this our song today in response to the charge of Revelations chapter 2? Have we forgot the wretchedness of our condition? Have we wrapped ourselves with the wealth of this time period to such a degree that we forget the love that bought us out of slavery? Do we forget the prophet Isaiah as God calls out through that prophet and says, listen to the Lord who created you, the one who formed you, don't be afraid, for I've ransomed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. And when you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. Most of you probably don't know that up north in the Upper Peninsula, that for the longest time we had an elf up there. No kidding. There's an actual elf living up in, in the north, Upper Peninsula. No, I know a lot of you feel the Upers are a little strange anyways, but, but this was an actual elf. See, back in 1989, the government got together in the military during the Cold War era particularly. They started this program, and they created a device that went between Republic, Michigan in the Upper Peninsula and 80-some miles away to Clam Lake, Wisconsin. They laid a series of wires and, and, and grid and a, and a pattern of things down to create the world's largest antenna. See, the problem was this. Submarines, especially our nuclear submarines designed to destroy our enemy, are vulnerable at the surface, and so they stay down deep, trying to hide in the water. But when they're down like that, we can't communicate. Communications don't work through water to any great degree of a distance. And so we had a problem. Well, they figured it out by creating this ELF, this extremely low-frequency communication device. ELF. They would spread the wires in this intent in such a way that it went and, and connected somehow with a literal bedrock, and as a result, they were able to send communications to our submarines literally anywhere in the world, regardless of their depth. One problem with it, because of the nature of it, the wavelength was particularly long, like 3,000 miles long on the wavelength which meant they could only put uh, like a three-character code that would have to be transmitted over a period of several hours of time. So they couldn't communicate complex issues. What they could do, though, was send a signal to let those subs know to surface and get near the surface where they could receive more complex instructions. In other words, it was kind of a beepers for nuclear submarines. Now, I know my crowd, so beepers. <laughs> Beepers were these things that we used in the 1900s. And you would have it literally on your belt, and it would beep to you when someone sent a signal to it. And that told you to go to a phone that was usually on the wall. We're not going to get into rotary dialing, another subject, another time. And you would then call whoever it was that had beeped you. Okay? So a, nuclear, a beeper for nuclear submarines, telling them to rise to the surface 
to take their instructions. There is a deep calling that God has that seeks us out in the depths that we hide ourselves. The fears of assault and attack, the fears of vulnerability, and it reaches out to us and sends a pulse in his love to draw us up to a place of vulnerability to engage with him. We are in a world where all the king's horses and all the king's men could never put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But we are fortunately, thankfully, in a world also where God chose to come down in the form of a man to die and in that death to give life to everyone else so that we could, those of us that recognize, acknowledge and realize that we are in fact poor in spirit can stop hiding in the depths of our sin and our shame, can sense the deep, profound calling of his love and of his grace, something that moves way beyond erotic love, something that moves way beyond the love of family, something that moves way beyond the love of the deepest friendship, the sacrifice of a life for us. And this is why Jesus begins the most profound declaration ever. As Americans, we have the Declaration of Independence that stated things in our Constitution that's a marvel of of communications and other declarations hither and there. But Jesus begins with the Declaration of the Kingdom of God. His main communication, and he begins it with Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who know they are poor. Happy are those. Because there's provision for you. There's the richness of his love and of his grace. And for those of us who have forgotten that, this morning, I call you in Christ's name to remember your first love, to come back to that place of passion and allegiance and identity. If anything else has crowded that out, even a good thing, step away from it. Come back to that first love. And for those of you who have never made that commitment, Maybe you think you are because you were born in this country or you are because you attend a church like a duck that sits in a garage and thinks it's a car. But until you come to an understanding of the message of Christ, until you wipe all those illusions out of your mind of your giftings and your abilities and your wealth and your status and you realize that you are poor, In that moment that you acknowledge that, today, here, even now, and you accept Christ as the covering for that and the richness of his grace and love, then that begins the process. We begin there. We enter into the kingdom of God, but we've just begun that work. And so... 
Lord, we come before you this morning, gathered in this sanctuary, not an auditorium, this sanctuary. We gather not as a crowd, not as an audience, but as a congregation of poor people. Lord, as we accept your grace, the richness of your love, we are transformed, we are overwhelmed, we are broken and shattered and restored and renewed. So, Lord, we begin and we respond to your deep calling this morning as you begin the process of teaching us about the kingdom of God. How great this love Oh, it's moving on the mountains This perfect love It's casting out my fear How great this love Oh, it welcomes me like family And anywhere I go It meets me there Cause He is good And He is God What I earn It's not what I got And He is just Yet oh so kind What I deserve It's not what I find What more could I say about Him My God is love How great this love Oh, it's faithful through my failures This trusted love Is with me till the end How great this love And oh, it's closer than a brother And this is love She is good And He is God What I earn It's not what I got And He is just It oh so kind What I deserve It's not what I Say about it, my God is love. My God is love. Oh, my God. 
of God's grace and love. It penetrates to the depths of where we hide and it brings us to the surface, a place of vulnerability. But that's only the beginning. It's there that we can begin to receive the far more complex messages of the kingdom. And that's why it begins with an awareness. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs ours is the kingdom of God over the next few weeks as we dig deeper in this deeper calling we'll explore what that means to be a part of that kingdom would you stand with me please Father I pray again for those have forgotten their first love, that they would meditate on this today, Lord. I pray for those of us who this is our first real awareness of our condition and we bring it to you today, that you would affirm for them today that you're beginning something radical in their life. I ask, Lord, for those that need to take time just to stay in this place and meditate on that, would feel the freedom to do so. And the rest of us would be sensitive of that in our leave going. Walk with us these next weeks, I pray in Jesus' name.